0: Well, good morning. Uh, I hope you are doing well this morning. It's uh, great to be here uh, and have this privilege of uh, looking into God's Word together with you. If you'll grab your bulletins uh, and uh, follow along in our passage, we're going to be looking at the the Psalms passage, which is kind of split into the two readings there. Uh, that's going to be our main focus, but before we take a close look in that, we're actually going to just... Uh, highlight a little bit from our reading from Ephesians. Just kind of, I think it sets the context a bit for our passage in Psalm 119. But first, let me just pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your spirit. And we ask that your spirit would dwell among us Would uh, guide our hearts and our minds to your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you turn to Ephesians 4 17 to 18, the Apostle Paul tells us Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Later on in in the passages, Paul continues on. He urges us to put off our old selves. He urges us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self. And uh, this this hardness of heart is something that I just want to key in on for just a moment it's something that we're not just warned of in this one passage it's something that comes up in a lot of other places in scripture it describes a way of life that ignores or actively resists God it is for a Christian something that we are to willfully resist we're supposed to put it off we're supposed to replace it with something new The context of this passage is growth as a Christian. Take off your old self with its hardness of heart and put on your new self that is growing to be like Jesus. And this growth is what our passage from Psalm 119 is concerned with. The main idea that I hope we'll see is that God's word in Christ provides us a safe place for our heart to grow. In uh, the book Between the World and Me, the now former writer for the Atlantic, Tanahashi Coates, pens a letter to his son. In this letter that examines his own experiences growing up in Baltimore, attending Howard University, and moving to New York City, visiting Paris, getting married, and having a child, he reflects on what it means for him as a person of color to exist in the present climate of the United States, and on what he wants to pass on to his son. Through his narrative, he paints a picture of the armor that he puts up to engage with the world, the protection that he needs against the injustices he faced in growing up in the shadow of the crack epidemic in Baltimore, and as well as facing many injustices of society that people like him face he confesses that he's a materialist, that he's someone who doesn't believe in spiritual reality. That is, God and the soul and the like. And so as a materialist, he gives advice to his son. He says, our bodies are all there is to us. The spirit and the soul, he says, are the body and the brain. We therefore need to protect our bodies because... That is all we have. So he says, here's how to keep your head up and your eyes open to to look out for yourself. Yet at times, as he writes, he laments the fact that he actually lacks the hope that he sees among people in church. People of faith who face many of the same challenges that he has, but they face it with a hope that acknowledges the reality of the soul and, and spiritual reality and and a faith that's grounded in Jesus. There's something that's lacking in an understanding of humanity that denies our spiritual nature. You see, when we take the the spiritual reality out of the picture, when we're faced with relying on ourselves for protection and security, what we end up doing is we end up building some hard walls. I ran into this hardness a number of years ago. I I used to lead a Bible study with a group of high school students in Bushwick in Brooklyn. It was part of this after-school program. And uh, after a few weeks, we were just not getting anywhere. Uh, It was just kind of not connecting. I know some of you have had this experience before. But then what happened is I came across this book on the shelf in this library where I was staying. It was a book of poetry by the 1990s rapper Tupac Shakur. For those of you who are not up to date on your hip hop history, Tupac was, and he still is kind of one of the most popular rappers of all time. He's controversial, but he's honest, and I think that's why he has such a following to this day. I'd found a poem that he wrote. It was called When Your Heart Grows Cold. It's a poem about growing callous towards injustice and violence, hunger and loneliness. And in doing so, when your heart grows cold, you lose the ability to feel it all. Whether it's joy or hate or love or pain, you just don't feel it. You go numb. So Kind of out of curiosity, I read this poem to this group of students, and every single one of them identified with it. What it did is it gave voice to the hardness that they had put up to survive in some pretty tough circumstances. And from that time on, having named that hardness, we were actually able to start interacting with the Bible. It wasn't until we gave a voice to this hardness that defined them, that we were able to start moving forward and engaging with the word. Now, I think it's easy to, to look at hardness that we see in others, you know, such as these kids that I was working with, and, and distance yourself from that hardness. You know, It's not our experience. But the reality is that we all harden ourselves, regardless of whether we've had a hard or an easy life. That's why Paul warns us against having a hard heart. There's different kinds of hardness. Just because you haven't grown up in a rough neighborhood like, like Baltimore, like Tanahasi Coats, Coates, or East Harlem, like Tupac, or, or Bushwick, doesn't mean you don't build up walls in your own life. The circumstances may be different. You may not have ever faced injustices of racism and gangs and drugs. But we all face hard things. We have bad relationships. We have illness and there's unemployment. And we either try to toughen up and and create distance or or we try to insulate ourselves. Both of these things harden us. Then we we have this tendency to numb ourselves. We use entertainment or or, or sports. Maybe it's working long hours or, or shopping Social media is a big one. Eating food or drink, it protects us, it isolates us. And often it's from something that we can't even define, we can't even name. I think the city that we live in, New York City, is a place that just brings this out. One of the things I both love and hate about living in the city is, is the grind. Did you know what I mean, the grind? It's this relentless nature of the city, especially if you're in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. It's, it's this thing where, you know, you go out to do something fairly routine and you just don't know what's going to happen. It might mean you meet one of the most amazing people you've ever met in your life on your way to Trader Joe's. Or it might mean that you have one of the most aggravating experiences ever, like, like actually shopping at Union Square Trader Joe's at, in the peak hour. But but we cope with this unpredictability by constructing armor to survive. And it can be simple things, we, we read books, we listen to music, we stare at our phones, we're packed into a subway train, we're this close to everybody but we're not actually touching them. And, and, and we've built up these walls. Um, maybe we just try to, enter, to experience all the entertainment that there is in the city, it's endless. And and honestly, these things work most of the time. But occasionally, we get worn down because we're just moving at a relentless pace. And it's in those spaces that our heart gets exposed. And then we realize that all of us carry deep wounds. We carry insecurities, we carry despair, we carry anxiety. And it hurts when these things get exposed, and and we may not like what we see. But it's here that we're presented with an opportunity. Will we continue to try and rebuild that hard wall, that armor that we've built up? Or will we turn to God through Jesus with our true self exposed and see what God will do with us? Here's the thing. We, We need protection, the Bible has, has many ways, places where it says things like, like in Proverbs 4, it says, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. What we need and we desire is a secure place where we can grow and flourish. But if left to our own desires and abilities, we, we just build up this hardness of heart so that we can survive, so that we can keep going. If we can make it here, we can make it anywhere, the saying goes. Jay-Z, Frank Sinatra, that's her thing. We actually pride ourselves on our self-sufficiency. And we will reward it when we see it in others. Then we look down on people when they stumble and fail. See, the fact is, we aren't actually made to interact with the world directly, just on our own, unmediated by anything. We're first and foremost made to primarily interact with God. It's made possible through Jesus. And in Him we therefore engage in the world around us. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, they walked in the garden with God. And when they turned away from him, they were actually unable to create what unable to fulfill what they were created for. They were created to steward and care for the rest of creation they couldn't even interact well with each other work became toilsome and and relationships were broken but ultimately it's jesus who steps in and mediates what is broken he mends what is broken he he mends relationships he realigns us with god and with each other when we skip that When we avoid it, we're just faced with our raw selves just going at it on our own, facing the world, the good and the bad. And we craft our own defenses and coping mechanisms. And uh, the end result is we have hard hearts in some way. But our passage in Psalm 119, verses 57 to 64, lays out for us how we can avoid hardening our hearts. It's by turning towards God. And here we see that God's word in Christ provides a safe place for our hearts to grow. So turning to Psalm 119, we, we, what, we're, what we have before us is we're actually entering into the middle of this really long psalm, 176 verses, there's 22 parts, and we're in part six. It's, it's actually part six of like this 22-part poem. It's a poem that's actually an acrostic but you don't really realize that because the acrostic is in the Hebrew, the, the original language it's written in. Uh, it's a very intentionally crafted psalm. And so each section of the psalm, about eight verses, starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have eight verses that start with the letter Aleph, and then eight verses that start with the letter Beit, and so on and so forth. The section that, that we're in is, is the section, the eighth section that starts with the Hebrew letter chet. It's, uh, if you're not familiar with Hebrew, don't worry about it. Um, just think about the letter H. Um, think in, in Hebrew, like every line would start with an H word. And so these, these words just kind of organize the whole psalm. And especially in verse 57, the first verse that we have, verse 64, the last verse that we have, the H words that that are prominent in those verses are really important for understanding what this little passage is talking about. These are sort of the bookends that hold the whole section together. And then sandwiched in between these, these H words are a whole bunch of words, eight words, that are different ways of explaining the word word. Psalm, psalm 119 is this giant meditation on the word of God. So, so jumping in into this psalm, uh, we look at the first H word. first H word is this word chalak. It's actually translated in verse 57 as portion. So if you, if you look at verse 57, it says, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. So the psalmist starts us off here with some very Deep, rich imagery. He's drawing on the story of Israel. God's people had endured a few hundred years of slavery in Egypt, and and you could, uh, you know, in in hundreds of years of slavery, you, you build up this this hardness. You, you learn to survive in this environment, and as uh, as it came time for God to to lead his people out of slavery, kind of the hardships get ramped up and ramped up as, as Moses shows up on the scene and starts challenging Pharaoh. Eventually, Moses leads God's people out and they are led into the desert. They're in the desert. Uh, it's this, this harsh wilderness. They're wandering around. But, but in there, God still provides for them. He provides for them by giving them manna provides for them by giving them water. Um, God leads them himself through the desert. He, he's, he's very prominent. He's the one providing for them. He's sustaining them. And, and this wandering um, goes on for 40 years. 40 years of wandering before finally they enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And once they've actually entered into the promised land... One of the first things that they do, they, they, there's some cities that they got to conquer, there, there, there's a bunch of stuff that they do, but once they kind of get settled there, they they divide up the land according to the various tribes of Israel. Each tribe is to be given a portion of land. And this this land is it, it, it gives them this sense of security. Um, now that they're there, they can grow their own food. They, they can dig wells, they can build homes. This is is one of the things that they've been longing for, that they haven't had. They haven't had it for hundreds of years. They haven't had it for the last 40 years of wandering. But not every tribe was actually given land. There's one tribe that was deliberately not given land. That's the priestly tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi is actually given 48 cities that are scattered throughout the other tribes. It's kind of like uh, the tribe of Levi is this reminder that God gives to the rest of his people, this reminder about where their true source of identity and security comes from. In Joshua 13, the tribe of Levi is told that their portion is not the land, but rather their portion is the Lord God of Israel. God himself is their refuge, is their safe place, is He's the one who takes care of them. He's the one who provided for them. He was the one, he's the same God who led them through the wilderness. And now that they've settled in a place, he's still to be their security. He's still to be be their their portion. He's a place where hearts can be healed and that they can grow. And and a reading in John this morning actually develops this this idea even a little bit further uh, where Jesus talks about himself as as the manna, the bread that comes down from heaven. You see that the the security and sustenance is is given by God himself. It's not not so much about the place. It's about being with God. Now, knowing that God himself is our safe place, uh, what it does is it opens up for us this vast freedom in which we can grow and flourish in. It's this freedom of relationship. And we can sense this in, in the psalmist's responses to the proclamation that God is our portion. There's this exuberance that the psalmist has as he, he promises to keep God's words in verse 57. He seeks God's favor in verse 58. He hastens to keep God's commandments in verse 60. And this exuberance, it overflows in not just this, this relationship with God, but relationships with other people. The psalmist embraces God's law when the wicked are trying to trap him in verse 61. There's this adverse relationship that's going on. And then he befriends God-fearing people in verse 63, the people who keep God's precepts. We, we see here in, in, in this, this psalm that we grow and we flourish not isolated on our own, not walled off from other people from the world, but in community with others who are also in relationship with God. The thing to note about this community is that it's completely immersed in the word of God. There's eight terms that are used over and over again throughout the entire of Psalm 119. These these words are word, promise, testimonies, commandments, law, rules, precepts, and statutes. I went over those really fast, and uh, the reason is is that this passage that we have, it isn't concerned with drawing out all of the meaning from each one of these words. That's actually what the entire 176 verses of Psalm 119 is about. It's this meditation on it. But, but in our passage, these these words... The, these terms for word are just put together very shortly and succinctly, and they're set in the context of this relationship with God, of the, this, this place of, of, of God being our portion, our security. The reason, ultimately, that we have God's words, his commands, his instructions, his promises, are, are to point us to Jesus, Jesus who is the word, Jesus, who is, our, who is the, the bread of life, as it says in our John passage. And this, this evidences itself in our passage in a deep sense of worship that also comes through here. It isn't just about keeping laws and obeying commands. In, in, in verse 62, it says, At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. This is a very deeply personal psalm. There's there's intimacy here. And this all culminates. It's all building towards the last verse, verse 64. Verse 64 is where we have the the second of the H words. Um, We we have a word that in Hebrew is chesed. It's translated in in our passage as love. Love. Uh, In other translations, it's translated as steadfast love. What we've seen is we've started in in our passage with God being our secure portion. He's our place of safety. This creates this space where we're drawn into a passionate pursuit of God's word, where we can grow, and it leads us to God's steadfast love. We see in verse 64 that, The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. God's steadfast love is is not some warm, fuzzy feelings that he has for us. It, It carries much more weight than that. I think that's why it's paired with the psalmist's request for God to teach him his statutes. Statutes is a word for decrees and pronouncements that a ruler makes. These are our permanent words. They don't change. I think this is getting at the nature of God's steadfast love. It's a covenant love. It's a love that's bound by the character of God. It doesn't change. It's, it's steadfast. I think this is seen when, when God called Moses to go to his people and lead them out of slavery. Looking back in Exodus 6, God, God turns to Moses and It's secure. It's based on God's promise to accomplish what he desires. He promised his people he'd lead them out from slavery, and he did that. He sustained them through the desert. He sustains them as they enter into the promised land. I am the Lord. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. As we move back to our psalm, we see that this lines right into God saying that he'll be our portion. God pursues us. And so by the end of our psalm, God's steadfast love is actually seen to be expansive. It actually fills the whole earth. There's no escaping it. We're bringing things back full circle to the beginning of our psalm. God is is our portion, he's our security, and and this is reinforced by this steadfast love that holds us fast to him no matter where we are or who we are. And this creates this space where we enter into deep fellowship with God, where we're healed and we're transformed and we're given direction. This is actually the, the opposite of hardening our heart. Hardening your heart is trying to protect yourself through isolation, it's trying to protect yourself by holding everything close. Here we see that submitting ourselves to God, to His Word, to Jesus, it actually opens us up to immense freedom. It opens up to the space to experience joy and love in a way that allows us to grow. It's this expansiveness that actually takes us outside of ourselves and causes us to look to others. Um, it, it, it causes us to invite others to experience this steadfast love of God, to experience this deep, deep, grounding, focusing relationship with God. I think someone who grasped this was St. Patrick. Um, I'd like to, to as, as I'm kind of drawing this to conclusion, just leave us with, with one word that, I, that comes from St. Patrick. St. Um, Patrick that I think gets at the heart of all of this. Uh, most of us associate Patrick with like St. Patrick's Day, you know, green beer and parades. Um, but there's, there's a lot more to his story. St. Patrick's story is, is just is very interesting. He lived in the fifth century in Britain. He was kidnapped by pirates when he was about 16 years old and sold as a slave in Ireland. After about six years, he managed to escape and return home. But it was during those six years of being enslaved that he actually became a follower of Christ. Even though uh, his father was actually a deacon and his grandfather was a priest, uh, he'd lived a largely irreligious life up until he was kidnapped and shipped away. It was was in this this context that he met Jesus, Uh, this Word that had been planted in him by his family took root in in this opposition and it began to grow. When he returned home, God had actually impressed on him to return to those who had enslaved him and to preach the gospel to them. And so he obeyed him. He obeyed God and he could have resisted God's call. You know, it would have made sense to isolate yourself from your enemies, avoid them and And go on with your life now that you've escaped but instead he turned to God through his word and and returned to Ireland and and sometime in the fifth century during his ministry to his former captors he penned a prayer that has come to be known as Saint Patrick's breastplate the content of this prayer reveals the intimacy of knowing Christ and and the necessity of his protection God's word functioned to provide the protective boundaries he needed to grow which fostered in him the desire to bring the gospel to Ireland. Now, we may not face a situation like former slave masters and, and that sort of thing, but, but we are sent out into the world, you know, and it's not necessarily going to be an easy go of it. But when we're sent out into the world, we, we need to be bound to Christ as we do that. So with that in mind, uh, let me just read... The final two stanzas of this prayer of St. Patrick. Uh, It's a very long prayer. I'm just going to read the last two two stanzas of it it as, as we close. It goes, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. I bind unto myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three, of whom all nature hath creation. Eternal Father, Spirit, Word, praise to the Lord of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. Amen.